no shortage of drama in the metals markets. Gold smashed. Silver smashed. Uranium, $70 per pound, relentlessly higher. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. Anticipating with glee the Canadian Mining Symposium next week on October 12th and 13th, only a week away. It is very exciting, and I have talked to some of the CEOs who I will be interviewing in person in London on stage. It should be a fabulous show, and again, the flagship event of the Northern Miner, uh, the Canadian Mining Symposium in London, England. So back to our markets here. I mean, taking a look at gold, gold is at $1,842. You know, if I go to our metal prices... There it is. Gold is $90 lower than last week. Silver is $2 lower than last week. Meanwhile, uranium at $70, we're up $4.50. So very interesting markets. I mean, if I had to take a step back, I see the uranium market as one of the least correlated markets in the entire stock market. And of course, I'm not an expert on you know, retail, utilities, et cetera, et cetera. I was going to say it's, it's fundamental in the way that oil is, but the thing with oil is if the economy slows down, consumption of oil slows down, but when does the consumption of uranium ever slow down? And finally, after years of waiting, there has been a payoff here for investors. And it's quite interesting. If we look at the stocks, starting with Cameco, if you look in the last five years, you've seen a rise from the lows in March 2020 of $6.30 all the way now to $37.57 on the New York Stock Exchange. So you've seen a 6x since the lows of March 2020. So Cameco, it almost looks parabolic. So perhaps a cause for concern there. But Cameco has gone on a very nice run. And even just year to date, we are up 63%. Over five years, we're up 211%. So, you know, it hasn't been an easy trade, the uranium trade, and it declined for a long time since 2011 all the way to 2016. Then it did nothing really until 2020. And then at the end of 2020, it started to move. And when it moved, it just went from, you know, October, September 2020 at around $9, $10. And now here we are at $37.57. Shall we take a look at a couple of gold stocks? Let's take a look at Barrick. Just quickly here, it's at $14.23 on the New York Stock Exchange. Year to date, we are down 20%, interestingly. And so isn't that interesting? Let's take a look at Newmont. We were at $35.54. Year to date, we are down 28%. Now they had this strike at the Penasquito mine in Mexico, and I'm not sure if that's resolved, so that may be a factor, but a dividend yield of 4.5% for Newmont. I mean, if you are a gold bull in the mid to long term, you know what this reminds me of is when I saw Exxon at like $30 and they had a dividend yield of like 9%, maybe even been higher than that. And I was telling my mom at the time, and of course I never bought it, But I was telling my mom, you know, like, there's nothing any more obvious than buying Exxon at like $30. And so this isn't as extreme, but it's getting pretty close. I mean, 4.5%, you know, year to date down 28%. And if we look in the last five years, this stock has been as high as $84. And here we are at 35. I mean, again, as an investor... If we get a washout here in the larger markets, metals could get totally washed out. We might see a situation comparable to 2016 when we saw tech at $3. Remember that? Now at $41.60. So that, my friends, is a heck of an investment. And again, if you have a 4.5% dividend, that is not bad at all from a value perspective. So all to say, Gold is looking uh, pretty attractive. And again, if we get a washout in the larger stock market, 
what an opportunity we might have in the gold stocks here. Cam Curry has been highlighting it. It is the bane of many of the juniors, but for investors, this is the stuff that investment dreams are made of. So it's getting very interesting out there. Again, if you feel like you missed the boat on uranium, maybe precious metals are a place to start looking, not investment advice. Just thinking out loud here as we prepare for this major conference coming up next week. And on the subject of the Northern Miner, I'm very pleased to welcome Alicia Hyatt to the show, editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. She discusses the paper's new format. It is now monthly, and it is now full of beautiful graphs. As she says, she was trying to bring actionable information, very useful information for people I saw the PDF and it's a beautiful product. So Alicia is going to discuss that. She's going to discuss the Canadian Mining Symposium. She's also going to discuss many of the big issues of the day, including uranium, including the disparity in gold stocks with the metal, as well as the political situation in Argentina, which the editorial staff at the Northern Miner are following very closely. So a wonderful show lined up for you today. Coming up on this week's CEO Spotlight, we have Michael Rowley, Stillwater Critical Minerals President and CEO, who is joining us to discuss the company's Stillwater West Critical Minerals Polymetallic Project in Montana. It sounds like a monster of a project in the works, perhaps another opportunity out there. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host this podcast and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Michael Rowley, President and CEO of Stillwater Critical Minerals for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Michael Rowley, President and CEO of Stillwater Critical Minerals to this week's CEO Spotlight. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adrian. Glad to be here. Well, it's exciting to have you here. I mean, as we were discussing before we hit record here, I mean, it's incredible. The people who are involved in Stillwater Critical Minerals, Glencore, Ivanhoe, Sabanier. So tell us a little bit about this company. For those that aren't familiar, what is Stillwater Critical Minerals? What are you guys up to? Oh, I'd be glad to. Yeah, we are advancing the next phase of critical mineral supply from an iconic and world-class American district that has actually been producing critical minerals since long before they were critical. We're battery metals, PGEs, and gold. We're drilling now with that Glencore investment that you mentioned. And frankly, it's been a really nice build over the past six years um, from the first acquisition of the ground. Building nicely, I think we were the right people in the right place at the right time to advance these giant South African mine models in an actively expanding U.S. district. It's It's been a lot of fun, frankly. Well, you're definitely in a part of the world that is excited to produce these critical minerals. So tell us then about where you are situated then in the U.S. and a little bit more about the projects themselves. What do you have? Like you mentioned, there was PGEs, gold. Was it always PGEs and gold and critical minerals are a newer thing? Or just tell us a little bit about the projects. Sure. Yeah. Well, the flagship in Stillwater is the the Stillwater West project. We have the entire lower half of the Stillwater Igneous Complex. Rare position for a junior to be in, aside from it being a large land position, 61 square kilometers that we own 100%. We share an iconic district with a $20 billion major, Sabanier Stillwater. They're actively producing to answer your question. The district is known for the high grade palladium platinum that they produce. Um, they're actually mining the highest grade deposit in the world of its type, half an ounce per ton grade, palladium platinum. It is a nickel copper sulfide deposit and they run two flotation mills and one smelter refinery in the district. In fact, right adjacent to us, um, literally two kilometers underground from one of our biggest deposits. This is all very positive. If you roll back 80 years, um, the US government was subsidizing chrome production from the Stillwater complex. So this is the district that the US government can step on the gas and, and mandate critical minerals production. Our ground produced high-grade copper prior to that. So it's, uh, again, it's a fortuitous place for us to be. We are located 
geologic terms, we are stratigraphically below that JM reef that our neighbour is mining, and that's the direct parallel of the Marinsky Reef in the mighty Bushveld complex, South Africa. Stratigraphically below that, you find the Platte Reef deposits, Ivanhoe's Platte Reef and Anglo-Americans, the Halaquena deposit, hundreds of millions of ounces of PGEs, tens of billions of pounds nickel and copper in sulfides. We have that exact parallel in Montana and it's wonderfully underexplored. We made the first acquisition in 2017. We've drilled four campaigns now. We're actively drilling now. We've debuted two resources and brought in Ivanhoe's past chief geologist as our vice president exploration just 15 months ago now. We're now drilling with Glencore's support and uh, we're happy to be drilling the targets and based on the structural model that these Ivanhoe fellows worked up uh, over winter. Very excited about that. The core looks fantastic. We put a news release out uh, about two weeks ago now with some first images, uh, assays are pending, and we feel very good about our potential to uh, expand uh, high-grade nickel sulfide with other values of copper, cobalt, the PGs you mentioned, and gold uh, in this actively expanding U.S. district. Fascinating. And as far as the critical minerals side of it, then, is that the PGEs? What are the critical minerals in the project? We're actually two-thirds battery metals by value. Um, it's a true polymetallic project deposits and that's part of what Glencore invested but in broad view we're 1.6 billion pounds of nickel copper and cobalt in five deposits across nine kilometers that want to connect plus 3.8 million ounces of PGEs and gold if you run the values on that we're 47 percent nickel by value 65 percent total battery metals by value so we're dominant on the battery metals eight or nine of our minerals are listed as critical in the u.s by the u.s geological survey right and the government behind them so we have a lot we call it internally hedged but nickel really is the focus here and that was the driver of glencore's interest and that's frankly what we're seeing in the core i was just at the core shack a couple of weeks ago and i think we've hit some really nice sulfide intervals so you're in Montana. How are you doing in terms of, say, I guess a kind of a double question on a micro scale? How is it going with the community around there? I assume they're used to this project being there since it's been around for a while. And just on the macro, you know, how has the government been treating uh, your project? Do you have, I assume you have some sort of uh, relationship there. What is the environment, the social environment, so to speak, around this project? Mining is well liked where we are, and our ground has been drilled in the past by AMAX and other good parties. So we've actually had an easy time um, getting permits, and it helps a lot that there are that Sabanier is producing right next door. Frankly, mining dates back to the late 1800s here, and Sabanier's work is well liked. Their good neighbor agreement that they have in place. I'd encourage your listeners to look that up, actually. It's a really good precedent for the mining industry. It's legally binding on the mine and the local communities. And since that was put in place around the year 2000, I think, it's literally been a very harmonious relationship. That first mine opened in 86. So it's a good precedent for the industry. And it's it's something that we're happy to to follow in the footsteps of. Well, it sounds all pretty promising and you're kind of right where you want to be in the U.S. where they are just, you know, it's become a very hot topic in, you know, the higher echelons of power, uh, you know, around the world, these sorts of things. So it sounds all very promising. Now, in terms of the roadmap here, so you mentioned you've done some drilling. It sounds like the drilling is ongoing. So where is this going from your perspective as president and CEO? Where are we in the process and kind of where do you see it going? Well, we're still on the left side of that Lassonde curve, but we're nicely off of bottom, right? We've debuted our second resource now. It's a robust increase on the first resource. And I think we're well underway to expanding that further, especially in the high grade categories, which seem to really get the market's attention. So that's the phase we're in. We're a growth phase company and we see lots of potential to grow this. As I mentioned, the, the 1.6 billion pounds, 3.8 million ounces is actually in five deposits spread across nine kilometers that are connected by high level geophysical anomalies and the soils on the surface show very good metal levels. Um, we have a very good feeling that we can connect this and grow these. 
In addition, we've mapped three kilometers to the west of that. That's actually where we're drilling now, is off the west edge of the current deposits. And that looks wide open for expansion as well. We're seeing some really exciting um, deep structures under Chrome Mountain. We think that's related to that 13.2 meter hit of 2.3% nickel that we had uh, reported a couple of years ago. And that's what we're focused on. That's what Glencore uh, wants us to focus on. And uh, actually, everybody's really happy at the core shack, I got to say. So we're growth phase, and um, we will start uh, wrapping some metallurgy, some, some PEA-level thinking around this over the coming next year and, and two. But for now, it's grow those resources. In addition, we have two other district-scale projects. One of them, we've cut a deal with Heritage Mining. That's the high-grade gold project in Ontario. We will look to do something similar with our Yukon asset as well. And these are ways of getting additional value for, for shareholders. The fact that you're able to attract talent from Ivanhoe suggests that there's something exciting going on here. As we wrap up, Michael, what is your message for investors? What do you want them to know about your company that they might not know? If you're looking for battery metals projects and critical minerals projects in a first world jurisdiction, with truly world-class grade and scale uh, and an actively expanding North American mining district. It's a very, very short list. Uh, in fact, I can't even, <laughs> it's probably, I don't know, you can count them on one hand. Uh, we're on that list. That's why Glencore invested. The Stillwater Complex, there's already 100 million ounces there, plus nickel and copper and other goodies. We're very happy to be there, and it's wonderfully underexplored. It's a layered magmatic system, and that's what brings this, this grade potential there. So watch us grow is the message. If you're looking for something that ticks those boxes, uh, it's a very short list. And you can find them at the incredibly amazing URL, criticalminerals.com. I was asking Michael all about that before we started. How did you get that? <laughs> Michael Rowley, President and CEO of Stillwater Critical Minerals. Thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you. And thank you once again to Stillwater Critical Minerals for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast, turning to the website, China's grip on critical minerals draws warning at IEA gathering. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm said the world is up against a dominant supplier of critical minerals that is willing to exploit its position for political gain in remarks apparently aimed at China and warned that energy security will become increasingly complex due to the transition to cleaner power. The remarks to high-level government officials, executives, and academics came Thursday in Paris at the International Energy Agency's first-ever meeting about critical minerals. Granholm and other speakers repeatedly implied that one country, China, controls much of the world's processing of materials used in everything from electric vehicles and wind turbines to missile guidance systems. And we have a quote, quote, In this critical minerals and materials context, we are up against a dominant supplier that is willing to weaponize market power for political gain. But our global energy crisis has taken on a new dimension, which is the urgency of this clean energy transition, end quote. Energy security will become more complex over the coming decades as countries require more of the nickel, cobalt, lithium, and other materials needed to cut down on global emissions, she said. The closed-door meeting brought together energy and mining ministers from some 50 different countries around the world, in addition to chief executive officers from the world's largest mining companies and experts in the field of critical minerals. Attendees said the event holds symbolic importance and formalizes how serious a threat its members view China's outsized position in critical minerals. China accounts for more than half the world's production of battery metals, including lithium, cobalt, and manganese, and as much as 100% of rare earths. And here is a quote from IEA Executive Director Fatih Birol, who said in opening remarks at the conference, Quote, when we look at both the production and the refining, processing of the critical minerals, we see a very high level of concentration. Looking at the history of energy in the last hundred years, when there was major concentration of one single country, one single company, one single route, there's always a challenge, end quote. Continuing on, Chinese and Russian aluminum groups signed deal to deepen ties. Now, this is something that came up with Paul last episode, which is what I was calling the playbook. And the playbook being this hypothesis that 
really Russia is going to continue supplying, and maybe China as well, supplying minerals and metals to the global south at cheaper prices than to the west. So here is perhaps another little shred of evidence. Chinese and Russian aluminum groups signed deal to deepen ties. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Chinese and Russian aluminum industry associations hope to expand cooperation across the supply chain as the two nations deepen ties in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine. The China Non-Ferrous Metals Industry Association signed a memorandum of understanding with the Russian Aluminum Association in Beijing on Monday, it said in a statement. Pan Shunki, Vice Party Secretary of the CNIA said the aim was to collaborate more closely on alumina, aluminum fabrication, and aluminum products without giving further details. Western nations haven't placed direct sanctions on buying Russian aluminum, but some buyers and banks have shunned the trade on ethical grounds or because financing and logistics have become too complex. That's led to growing volumes of Russian metal heading to China as well as to the London Metal Exchange warehouses. The MOU comes ahead of a visit by President Vladimir Putin to China next month and a face-to-face -face meeting with President Xi Jinping. Russia has become more reliant on Asia's largest economy as a market for its energy and commodities. It's also purchased growing volumes of Chinese alumina, used to make aluminum, after it lost access to regular supplies from Ukraine, Australia, and elsewhere. And continuing on, U.S. optimistic it will reach critical minerals deal with EU, this is Reuters via mining.com. The United States is optimistic it will conclude an agreement with the European Union to allow critical minerals mined or processed in Europe to qualify for U.S. clean vehicle tax breaks, a senior U.S. official said on Monday. The transatlantic partners are negotiating whether and how EU critical minerals, such as lithium and nickel, can qualify for green subsidies under the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which promotes products manufactured in North America. Jose Fernandez, Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment at the State Department, told a briefing in Brussels that both sides were in intense negotiations. I'm hopeful, optimistic. Negotiations are good. We realize that we need to work together, and I'm confident that we will have an agreement, end quote. He added there was no plan to tie an agreement on critical minerals to the result of separate transatlantic negotiations to resolve a bilateral dispute over U.S. import tariffs on EU steel. The United States signed a minerals deal with Japan in March. Now both the EU and Britain are looking for the same. Now this is interesting here too from the Northern Miner. This is Blair McBride. Processing unit of Canada's only rare earths miner goes bankrupt. Vital Metals, the only rare earths producer in Canada, has declared bankruptcy for a Canadian subsidiary after a review of its half-finished $55 million processing facility in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. The Australian junior-appointed accounting firm MNP Saskatoon as bankruptcy trustee of Vital Metals Canada, the parent company said in a news release on Friday. MNP will sell the assets and distribute proceeds to creditors. Vital's shares last traded at Australia 1.1 cent for a market cap of $43 million Australian before it halted trading in April. The decision, among the results of Vital's review that it began in April, was also made to allow the best chance of advancing the Tardif deposit, part of its Nekalako rare earths project in the Northwest Territories, Vital said. The company said in a July release that the review had largely been completed. Vital's other subsidiary, Yellowknife-based Cheetah Resources, which owns the Nekalako properties, is unaffected by the bankruptcy. So this is quite interesting. I mean, to me... Many people say government is the last thing you want involved, but to me, this is a classic case where if the government's going to bail out any part of the economy and we're making all these deals across the world for critical minerals, it seems to me that probably for a few million dollars, this thing can be saved. And we have a quote from Vital's interim chairman, Richard Crooks, who said in a news release, quote, while we are disappointed with the situation in Saskatoon, Vital remains focused on creating significant value for shareholders by advancing the Tardif deposit. He added that Vital tried to work with all parties to find an acceptable path forward for the business in Saskatoon. In a video message posted on YouTube, Crooks said the review found the plant, quote, doesn't make economic sense for us to operate, so we've decided to terminate that facility. I mean, has anybody informed the Department of Defense? You have all these stories about how we're going to collaborate and then for... A few million dollars. Like, this is the thing. 
I mean, would China allow this thing to go bankrupt for a couple of million dollars or however million dollars it is? $10 million? Continuing on here, the company paused construction at the plant in April, citing higher costs and lower rare earth prices for reducing the viability of refining ore from the North Tea Pit at Nekalako. The company last December said it would slow down construction of the plant after costs doubled. Vital said delaying construction of the plant's hydrometallurgical leaching, purification, and rare earth precipitation circuits would save it almost $16 million. But it said it would still finish the calkine circuit by this year's third quarter to produce an intermediate rare earth oxide product. Amid the review, Vital sought alternative funding for the plant, as well as potentially repurposing the facility to accept alternative feedstock. However, the company wasn't able to conclude any agreements. I mean, maybe there's something I don't understand here. Because it seems to me that you have the International Energy Agency meeting and saying how critical minerals are a major issue because China runs all of the supply chains of almost all of the minerals. And here, for a mere, in order to save $16 million, Vital has basically first delayed it and now is going out of business after it wasn't able to conclude any agreements to fund this thing. I mean, continuing on, it also spoke with its Norwegian offtake customer, Retech, about amending an agreement to reflect changes in economic conditions. Those negotiations weren't successful. Like, has anybody notified the U.S. government? Has anybody notified the Canadian government? I mean, what is going on here? Like, I don't understand this article. Those negotiations weren't successful, and Vital gave notice to Retech on Thursday that it would terminate the agreement, effective on December 26th. So go figure, you can read the rest on northernminer.com. I don't even understand, and great reporting from Blair McBride, but talk about the macro and the micro not lining up. I mean, what were we just reading on the International Energy Agency from U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm? I mean, how many rare earths processing facilities do we have? So just wrapping up here, a few headlines. Argentina seeks to tax lithium boom to avoid region's resource curse. So Argentina is pushing to levy a new tax on lithium producers and make them hold back some production for national battery projects. Provincial and federal officials want to tap the profits of lithium companies with an annual tax that would be put towards building infrastructure. They're also proposing a quote of up to 20% of output to be kept for domestic battery projects. Very interesting. You can read the whole thing on mining.com. And also another headline here, Mexico says lithium concessions under review after Ganfang flags cancellations. This is Reuters via mining.com. Mexican President Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador on Thursday said the country's lithium concessions are being reviewed after China's Ganfang last month indicated that its Mexican lithium concessions were being canceled. So China is maybe not too happy about that. We have a quote, we are reviewing them because mining concessions were initially handed over for the exploitation of gold, silver, and copper, not lithium. We have decided that lithium belongs to the nation because it's a strategic mineral. End quote. The head of Mexico's mining chamber on Wednesday said he did not believe the government could legally cancel the Ganfang concessions. So, bit of fallout there on the lithium front in Mexico. Another headline, Quebec in talks with battery automakers for $11 billion in EV-related investments. I'm doing the Quebec panel at the Canadian Mining Symposium, and what I've learned in the preparation is Quebec is rolling out the red carpet to become the hub for electric vehicle batteries in North America. So they're doing everything they can. And of course, they have hydroelectric power there, so they can do it in a pretty green way. Continuing on, U.S. Wayne record $1 billion loan for massive lithium mine in Nevada. So while rare earths processing facilities in Saskatoon are shutting down for something like $16 million, the U.S. government is giving a billion dollars to help develop a lithium deposit in Nevada. So, so maybe there's something I don't understand in that Vital Metals article. And finally, Fission set on 2025 Patterson Lake South construction start. So Fission Uranium is going to start construction in 2025 at Patterson Lake South. A couple other headlines, China gold prices plunged the most since 2020, curbing record premiums. So premiums are coming down on gold prices in China, which have been a point of contention for the last few weeks here. And finally, silver price to benefit from solar sector demand once rates peak. So again, back to this idea that silver may be an interesting 
investment, not financial advice, but a low silver price here, if it continues to get smashed, could present an interesting opportunity. And this is a Reuters article via mining.com. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Prices. Let's just take a quick look at the U.S. 10-year Treasury bond. It is yielding 4.7%. A couple of hours ago, it was actually at 4.75%. So a new high here recently in yields, and U.K. 10-year gilts are yielding 4.564%. That is 0.28% higher than last week, and Italian bonds are yielding 4.882%, and that is 0.22% percent higher than two weeks ago. Turning to precious metals, gold smashed at $1,841.30 per ounce. That is $88 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $21.22 per ounce. That is $2.03 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $878.32 per ounce. That is $24 lower than last week, and palladium is also lower at $1,206.24 per ounce. That is $25 lower than last week. Turning to industrial metals, copper is unchanged at $3.64 per pound. Iron ore is a dollar lower at $120.14 per metric ton. Aluminum is higher at $1.06 per pound. That is four cents higher than last week. Lead is two cents lower at a dollar even per pound. Nickel continues to drop at $8.36 per pound. That is 34 cents lower than last week. Tin also drops at $10.86 per pound. That is a dollar and five cents lower than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. Lithium continues to drop at $22.81 per kilogram. That is 79 cents lower than last week and the lowest price we have recorded here in the last six months since we started tracking lithium prices. Uranium is $4.50 higher at $70 even per pound and zinc continues to climb at $1.18 per pound. That is three cents higher than last week. So precious metals down, industrial metals really each going in the direction of their own fundamental markets is what seems to be happening there. Lithium and nickel are big standouts lower, while uranium is a standout higher at $70 per pound, and those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome back Alicia Hyatt, editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner, back to the Northern Miner podcast. We discussed the newspaper's new format and new release schedule now going monthly and all of the refresh that is happening with the paper. I've seen it. It's beautiful. It's full of color and it is designed to be useful. So we hear all about that. We also hear about the main topics that Alicia is following in the mining markets as well as her thoughts on the Canadian Mining Symposium that is coming up next week in London. I hope you enjoy the conversation and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I am very pleased to welcome Alicia Hyatt, Editor-in-Chief of the Northern Miner, back to the podcast here. Alicia, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Well, I always enjoy our discussions. They're always interesting, and it's very interesting, I think, to have the perspective of the person that is editing this storied newspaper here. So it's going to be really interesting just to hear what's going on at the Northern Miner and just everything that is interesting to you. So the big news at the Northern Miner is the new format of the newspaper. We have moved from a bi-weekly newspaper. I remember when we moved, actually, and I'm sure you do too, when we moved from weekly to bi-weekly. Now we're going to monthly here. It's going to be a different format. Did you want to talk to us a little bit about what is happening with the physical newspaper? 
Yeah, definitely. It's been uh, something that we've been working on for months. We're switching to a monthly issue, mainly to make the product better. So we believe in print. Personally, I think there will always be room for print products because it can just make a more visceral impact than a digital product can, even if it's static. So there's something about holding a newspaper, book or magazine in your hands that you can't replicate with an e-version. So we really wanted to evolve our print product. The last time we had a redesign of the paper was probably 10 years ago. And we are competing with digital products, including our own website, that do have enhanced features, video, all of that sort of engaging stuff. So what we are trying to do with the the print product is really make it more insightful, make it more exciting, make it more fun even. I don't know if you had a chance to go through the issue. It's just coming out as of October 1st. It's our first monthly issue. It's a big evolution for us uh, because it's a larger issue. This first issue is 48 pages as opposed to our regular 24. We've organized the information into different sections so readers can easily find what type of news that they're interested in. So, for example, if you want an overview of recent resource updates and economic studies for various projects, you go to our project updates section. If you want merger and financing news that's in our done deal section. We've also incorporated some interesting new visual elements. So uh, an infographic of the month, for example. And we've also got a photo of the month. And for the photo of the month, we are actually accepting submissions from readers. So whether that is a current image or a historical image, as long as it's a great shot and it's mining related, and also, of course, has to be high resolution enough for print, we do encourage people to get in touch with us and share those images with us. A couple more things. One of the fun things that we've added is a Q&A at the back of the paper. So it's not really newsy at all. It's more about getting to know different executives in, in the mining industry personally, what makes them tick, what they like to read, what they drive, that sort of thing. And for our first one, we've got Ross Bapu of uh, Resource Capital Funds. So he's very well known in the industry. And that's one of my favorite sections, actually. But I would say the centerpiece of the issue is our mining, metals and markets section, which incorporates Adrian. I know you're familiar with very familiar with the print product. We used to have four pages of stock tables in the middle of the paper. So we really completely redone that section, brought in some new information providers. So uh, mineralfunds.com is providing gold funds and ETF data for us. And mining intelligence is providing capital raisings information. So uh, I think that's going to be a really popular section of the paper. It's been designed to look really great and to be very informative. So I really encourage people to check it out. Well, I am looking through it, and I have to say, it looks like a very ambitious newspaper here. It looks quite refreshed and everything, and I'm going through that metal section. And I also like the project updates section, because before, it was almost kind of like, and that's as long as I've been at the Northern Miner, there was very loose groupings of content. But here it seems like it's a little bit more, the groupings are a little bit more tight, shall we say, in terms of putting all the project updates together. I think that's really cool. Was that something, I guess it was done on purpose, obviously. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, awesome. And I really love that idea of the photo of the issue where the readers can submit. So for anybody that might be listening and might have be immediately excited by that aspect, how do you apply you know, to see if your photo can be in the newspaper? Yeah, they would just email us, uh, just get in touch with us. As I mentioned, it does depend on, on the resolution, the quality of the photo, but you can email me directly, ahyatt at northernminer.com, or you can email our production editor, Blair McBride, bmcbride at northernminer.com. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see what kind of submissions we get. And like I said, we're open to historic uh, images as well. They don't have to be current. So, yeah, a fun idea. It's almost like it could be its own section potentially at some point. So tell us a little bit more then about the industry itself. I'm looking at the front page here. Industry puzzles over historic gap between mining valuations. I mean, this has been a major issue. Maybe tell us a little bit about what's going on in the mining sector, just from your perspective. Uh, what's kind of like topical these days as the editor of the newspaper? The article that you just referred to about valuations of, of gold stocks versus gold, which is near record 
prices right now. That's been an ongoing issue for all year and longer. It's been something that companies have been complaining about. It's hard to raise the money. And when companies do have good exploration results, for example, they just don't really go anywhere. People are selling into good news. It's not a, a great feeling for a lot of companies right now. It's got to change at some point, but we're not sure when. Probably will have to do with the interest rates starting to come down. As you know, that hasn't been the case this year. It's been the opposite. But it's actually surprising that gold is, is as high as it is, considering how aggressive the central banks have been with interest rate increases. Absolutely. It's something that's kind of commented on a lot. It's almost like a testament to the strength of gold that it hasn't dropped in the face of higher interest rates where people can get a yield on their fiat. People are still buying gold. Uh, you know, it's I guess you'd call it a relative strength thing. So, yeah, that, that is quite interesting. And we had Cam Curry on a few weeks ago. He was commenting on these valuations, too. I mean, I was asking him how similar it was to 2016. And he said very similar in the just in terms of valuations. Like it's it's quite something that's happening out there. You know, as you talk to these explorers, you know, just to survive is an achievement these days. Absolutely. And they're just not getting rewarded for for good news. But I do yeah. think that will change. It will have to change at some point. The trick is to survive, as you say, in the meantime. Also in the newspaper here, we have on the front page, Northern Miners Person of the Year for 2022, Sigma Lithium CEO, Anna Cabrell. Could you preview for us Anna's story and why she was the recipient of the 2022 Person of the Year Award? Yeah, so our announcement for Person of the Year for 2022 is a little bit late this year in order to coincide with our first monthly issue of the paper, which is the October issue, and also the Northern Miners Canadian Mining Symposium in London, UK, which is coming up very fast, October 12th to 13th. I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that later, um, and I know I'm going to see you there, Adrian. But for 2022, we chose Sigma Lithium CEO Anna Cabral as our Person of the Year because of Sigma's success since its IPO in 2018, they started construction of their Grota do Serio hard rock lithium mine in Brazil in late 2021. And they achieved first production this year. They've had some rumors of takeovers that Tesla was interested in them earlier this year. It's been a, quite a success story. It's really the first major lithium development in Brazil large scale. And they have plans to expand it quite a lot over the next year or so. And if they do succeed with that, it could become the world's fifth largest lithium producer, which is pretty impressive. Anna Cabral, the CEO, is a co-founder of Sigma. Her background is actually in banking. So earlier in her career, she worked on the privatization of Vale, which was previously a Brazilian state-owned company. And then she also worked on Vale's takeover of Inco later on. She also has a background in private equity. She is a co-founder of a Brazilian PE firm, A10. They're Sigma's largest shareholder, and they're a bit unusual in choosing to become owner operators. Usually private equity will help companies and management and provide resources, but they don't usually get so involved in actually running the company. So Actually doing that has allowed Sigma to do things a bit differently. On the environmental front, they don't have a tailings pond, for example. They choose to process the spodumene a bit differently because they wanted to avoid certain environmental issues. I think Anna Cabral was really influenced by exposure to a lot of tech companies in her, in her banking career. So she sought to make Sigma less, as she calls it, top heavy. So where some junior companies, their awards will go mostly to the management at the top. Sigma's got like a, a very generous employee stock ownership plan, you know, kind of like a Silicon Valley company. So everyone is motivated to push the company forward. And that's something that she points to as, as a reason for their success. That is fascinating, this idea of taking this tech mindset and applying it to the mining industry. I'm assuming a lot of people have kind of thought about that from a theoretical point of view, but it sounds like she's really implementing it in practice and, you know, execution is everything on these things. And 
Yeah, just fascinating uh, story over there. So one of the things that makes the Northern Miner kind of special as both a website and a newspaper are the site visits. And I guess we have some site visits that are coming up here. What is coming up in terms of site visits? Yeah, we've got some great ones. So our Western editor, Henry Lazenby, is visiting American Eagle Gold's NAC Copper Gold Project in BC. That project has been returning some really good drill results. And earlier this year, Rio Tinto came in as a shareholder, taking a 15% stake in the company. So I'm really interested to see what Henry finds out from that site visit. He's there right now, actually. And he's also going to be visiting Tosico Mines, Gibraltar, Copper Molly Mine in BC. So he's very busy. Our senior staff writer, Colin McClelland in Toronto, has an, an interesting one coming up to see Grid Metals lithium projects in Manitoba. And Manitoba, there's been an explosion in, in exploration, not just for lithium, but also for base metals recently. So Grid Metals, they have the Donner Lake lithium project, and it's only... 35 kilometers away from the Tanko mine, which until recently was Canada's only producing lithium mine. Uh, it's owned by China's Sino mine. And Grid Metals actually has an initial toll milling MOU, so Memorandum of Understanding, with Tanko. So that is quite an interesting twist to their story as well, because there, there are so many juniors exploring for lithium in, in Manitoba right now, but they see that as, as an advantage. Fascinating. And so just in terms of, as we finish up on the paper here, what else are you seeing just big picture? What other big stories are you noticing on your radar? Well, we've actually got uh, one of our big features in the October issue is about Argentina. They've got an election coming up later in October. So that's something that we're watching because Argentina is an up and coming lithium producer. A lot of investment has been coming into Argentina. We just had an announcement yesterday. Stellantis has invested in a lithium junior there, Argentina Lithium, 90 million. We've also got Lithium Americas and Gangfang Lithium building a new operation there, Cachariolaros. So yeah, it's a place that a lot of people are watching, not just for its lithium potential, but also there's shares of the border with Chile, shares geology with Chile, lots of copper potential as well, big copper deposits. So yeah, that's something that we'll be reporting on as well in our next issue. Yeah, I can imagine that that Argentina story is going to be pretty massive. So then as we are going forward here, uh, we have the Canadian Mining Symposium. We both have a very full schedule there for the two days in London. So from your perspective, what's going on there? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what might happen there? Yeah, I mean, well, the Northern Miner for years now has been known for for these events that we put on and uh, the London one is one of our premium events. I've actually never gone. I know you've had the privilege before, but I'm really looking forward to this one and, you know, reaching out to the audience across the pond over there in the UK. We are known with our events for attracting uh, top notch speakers and this event is no different. Robert Friedland is going to be there. Don Lindsay is going to be there. Catherine McLeod-Seltzer, Randy Smallwood, Frank Joustra. These are, you know, really successful people, obviously, in the industry that we're able to, to have. They'll be talking about all sorts of things, including some of the things we were just talking about, such as the gold price and equities. We'll be talking about the energy transition and battery metals. There's even a little bit of uh, technology, processing technology that we'll be talking about. It's really um, everything that's happening in the industry. It should be a great show. And yeah, it's kind of like Canada on stage in London. It'd be great to have you there. And it should be a pretty exciting event. We have a new venue this time, moving from Trafalgar Square there at Canada House. Now we're going to be in East London. So that should be a lot of fun. So as we're wrapping up here, Alicia, any other kind of big picture thoughts on the mining industry, the Northern Miner, even the Canadian Mining Symposium? Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things that we're watching right now, we, we talked about gold and gold stocks and that disconnect there. But one of the things that we're watching is is uranium. Well, there's a lot of excitement right now in uranium because the price has risen to 
over $65 per pound in September from uh, under $50 a pound uh, at the beginning of the year and from uh, 2016 lows of around $18 a pound. So there are predictions that it's just going to keep going up. So I've seen one forecast that prices could triple or quadruple over the next few years. I'm not sure if you were with the Northern Miner at the time, but in in 2007, I was with the Northern Miner uh, as copy editor. And I remember when uranium hit all-time highs of of something like $140 per pound. Do you remember that, Adrian? That was before my time. I joined in 2012, but I was a subscriber to the Dines letter in maybe 2011. And he would always refer to this astonishing rise in uranium from like $7 a pound to $140. People made, you know, fortunes off of that bull market. Ever since, I mean, that's why the uranium narrative has never really quite gone away because people just made so much money. I mean, I think Doug Casey and and Rick Rule, there's this story that, you know, they're buying Paladin Energy at like below a penny and it went to like, you know, however many dollars. So it's... uh. Yeah, it's a storied and fabled commodity, but no, I, I was. It must have been incredibly exciting. Oh, it was. Yes, it was. And then, and then it crashed. But <laughs> right. uh, that is not the prediction this time around. That's not what's going to happen. One of the analysts that I read said that uranium has slipped into a persistent and widening deficit for the first time in history. So yeah, wow, this is that- a big story. Yeah, it sounds like it. And it sounds like you'll be covering it on the pages of the Northern Miner. I mean, that's what's kind of beautiful about the Northern Miner is it's such a great beat. You know, and you look at the other newspapers like the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal. Mining is always kind of a very it's kind of a here and there coverage. So that's what's so great about the Northern Miner is you you want your uranium coverage. You kind of know where to go. So, yeah, and it's just it should be a really interesting story to watch that rise since, as you're saying, since the beginning of the year, especially in the last few months. It's just been relentless on a weekly basis as we track it here. Yeah, that's the kind of story that we love, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Alicia Hyatt, Editor-in-Chief of the Northern Miner, thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner podcast. And we're looking forward to seeing you in London in just a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'll see you then, Adrian. Another big thank you to Alicia Hyatt for joining us on this week's episode. Do check out the Northern Miners' new look. It looks like a great upgrade to the newspaper, much easier to navigate and full of information that is designed to be acted on. Otherwise, perhaps I will see you next week at the Canadian Mining Symposium. Just go to events.northernminer.com for more information. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.